Hello, everyone. <laughs> I feel like a five-year-old who was just caught doing something bad. Um, hi. Hi. It's been a really long time. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start other than just to say that I am so glad to be back. Um, yeah. I... It's been months since you've heard from me, and... While I am generally not one to make excuses, you can hear the cat in the background. So I will get to this, but I am in an entirely new space and my cat is currently in the room with me. At some point, she will either get too loud or she will want out and I'll have to deal with that. But um, anyway, I'm generally not one to make excuses, but I in March got COVID. Um, I made it. I made it this long, and I finally fi she finally got me. That bitch finally got me. Uh, I had COVID. I was fortunate enough to have a, I would say, pretty moderate case. I mean, I got really sick, but um, I was fine. Uh, it lasted a long time. It lingered. I was testing positive for over two weeks, which fucking sucked. I missed a vacation that I had planned, which I was really sad about. Um, I missed seeing my brother and my sister-in-law when they were visiting, and it was a mess. But I eventually recovered. But once I recovered, I, uh, for a long time, couldn't walk or talk in full sentences without getting out of breath. I don't think I have long COVID, but I... Um, but that that was lingering it, and it still it that still affects me um up to this point a little bit and i also my my immune system was fucking decimated i like throughout my life just historically don't get sick very often i've never been a very sickly person i would get for most of my life i would get a bad cold maybe once a year, if that. I've been sick twice since having COVID in March. My immune system is fucking obliterated. Um, so that's concerning. But other than that, I'm healing well. Um, so I had COVID and then I moved. <laughs> I moved. I am in a new apartment. I, like I said, am recording in a brand new space. I have dedicated recording space in this apartment which i'm really excited about so if the sound um if, if things sound a little different oh now she's eating so i have rec i have dedicated recording space but it's also my cat's room <laughs> and of course she can't just lay there quietly when i sit down to do this she has to run around and then eat so okay i ended up just putting her out Anyway, I moved um, very shortly after recovering from COVID, not too far from where I was living when you last heard from me, but it was a pretty big move. Um, and then literally a week later, I had a huge work event that I have been working on and planning for for months. Um, that happened in the middle of April. And then right after that, I was traveling for work and then... Um, somewhere in between all of that, in between me being sick and moving, my cat actually had a medical emergency and that was really scary. 
And yeah, it's just been, it's been a really, really hectic several months. I'm glad to be back. Um, but yeah, there's just been a lot going on. And now I'm in a place where I feel like I can finally sit back down and devote more time to this project. And I'm really excited about it. And yeah, I hope you will all stay on this journey with me. I hope you all all forgive me for my absence. Um, yeah, it just things got things got wild, but I'm back and I'm so glad to be back. And I'm so glad to be coming back and resuming our Yes, God, Yes series on biblical sexology. And I am coming at you with a couple Larry Solomon articles today. We are going to look at two specifically that tie together and I'm excited. So, well, maybe excited is not the right word. I'm horrified. His words are horrifying, but I'm excited to talk about it. I was talking to someone about this and it's like, this stuff is horrific, but I really want to talk about it. I really like talking about it. So yeah, that's, that's what we're doing today. So you saw the title, you know that we are finally talking about modesty. And of course, modesty is a big topic in evangelical Christianity. So we're kind of scratching the surface. More specifically, we're talking about modesty through the lens of our good friend Larry's creepy sex blog. Now, if you, like me, grew up in evangelical Christian culture, you probably remember hearing about the concept of modesty all the time, especially if you were a little girl growing up in evangelical Christianity. In very, very simplified terms, modesty is the mode of dress and deportment which intends to avoid the encouraging of sexual attraction in others, at least as, as Wikipedia defines it. It's covering your body to varying extremes and dressing or generally presenting yourself in ways that aren't overdone or flashy or that draw attention to your body or to your beauty. In other words, when we, or at least those of us who have experience with modesty in a religious cultural context, think about this concept, we immediately think of short skirts, tight clothing, low-cut tops, etc., but something like drag, with loud makeup, big hair, exaggerated features, could also be considered immodest. And maybe that's not the best example given the Christian rights attack on drag culture right now, but it's, it's all connected, and we'll talk about that someday. It's all connected. Anyway, it should come as no surprise that when we talk about modesty, we're usually talking about women and girls. I was having a conversation about biblical modesty with someone, and as he put it, boys never got a gray sweatpants talk. But girls, on the other hand, were constantly warned to be careful about how we dressed. We needed to honor God by making sure our bodies were covered and our makeup, when we started wearing it, was minimal and, quote, natural. And, as I'm sure you can imagine, honoring God, in this case, always meant that it was our job to make sure the boys and men around us didn't lust after our bodies. And you might assume I'm talking about like tween age girls who are starting to experiment with their style and makeup. Yes, but also no, 
The first time I remember being exposed to this ideology, I was maybe five or six. The purple and pink Christmas dress. Do you all remember that story? I'm pretty sure I've told it on the pod before. My mom was buying our outfits for the Christmas Eve service and I wanted the black, hot pink, and bright purple one so badly. I can still see it in my mind and I actually had a conversation with my friend Hugh, hi babe if you're listening, who is currently teaching themselves to sew and is going to make me that dress someday. I got the puff sleeve, dark green velvet, A-line dress with attached fake pearl necklace instead because it was, according to my mother, more appropriate for church. I'm not really sure what would have been inappropriate about a five-year-old wearing pink and purple, but that's purity culture and biblical modesty for you. I say this often on this podcast, it's all about control. At the end of the day, it is all about controlling your body, what you look like, what you wear, for the sake of the men in the church. The men in the church shouldn't care about what kind of dress a five-year-old wears to a Christmas Eve pageant, but I digress. Anyway, back to our friend Larry and his take on all of this, which I'm sure you are just on the edge of your seats for. I started with his post titled, What is Biblical Modesty? Which, to be honest, is equal parts boring and informative. I don't want to dive too deep into that one because it really is what the title says. He unpacks some Bible passages and explains through contemporary definitions of biblical Greek language what those passages actually mean, at least again to him with his own personal baggage and context. To be clear, we all know this is problematic in and of itself, um, again, simply because it's nearly impossible to use contemporary language and understanding of language and the world at large to def- to definitively define a concept from millennia ago, right? I mean, evangelicals refuse to grasp that, but there are just so many ways to interpret ancient concepts, and these interpretations are based on so many different factors. As we are now well aware, Larry's interpretations of the Bible verses he chooses to use are influenced by his own agenda. And don't get me wrong, confirmation bias is human nature. As annoying as it may be, it's human nature and we all do it. We want to be right. We like being right. But as I've tried to point out in my biblical sexology episodes so far, the problem lies in choosing one little piece of scripture and using it to justify your whole belief system while ignoring parts of the Bible that might contradict you or at least provide more or different context. And while this specific article on his website is still very much that, he approaches his argument from almost more of a historical perspective than a biblical one, which is kind of refreshing. I believe in giving credit where credit is due, so I will say that. It is refreshing. But it's still boring as fuck, and it's still just a lot of words to dictate how women should dress. I'm going to address some key points in this article before moving on to one I think is so much more important within the context of Larry's creepy world of biblical sexology. Larry says, 1 Timothy 2.9 is probably the most popular passage in all of scripture that is taught by Christian teachers and preachers regarding how God wants Christian women to dress. And he's absolutely right. That's the one that was crammed down my throat my whole childhood. This verse states, 
In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array. Larry goes on to explain the verse by breaking it down. He starts by basically explaining that many take the verse at face value to mean that women should dress modestly at all times, when in reality, the verse is specifically talking about how women should dress at church. He explains that the chapter 1 Timothy was a letter written by Paul to a church planter or someone who was trying to start a new church. Part of the chapter includes instructions for proper etiquette for church attendees. And here I want to point out something really interesting. He says, but what about the phrase everywhere in verse 8 and answers this by explaining the following. Some in order to apply all parts of 1 Timothy to all parts of Christian life, not just church assembly etiquette, have attempted to use Paul's phrase of everywhere to mean this equally applies inside and outside the church assembly meetings. This is an incorrect interpretation as this phrase means for church assemblies everywhere. Paul makes it clear at the end of his epistle that this entire letter is aimed at proper etiquette in the church, taking on false teachers and the qualifications of bishops and deacons. And this is interesting to me because here, in this particular case, he's including context and the meaning of the surrounding verses in order to prove his point, which is antithetical to his approach to his other articles that we've already covered, in which he pulled specific verses out of their full context and used that as his evidence. It's wild to me, and I just wanted to point that out. What a little bitch. He goes on to discuss four key words in this passage by explaining their Greek origins. The words are modest, apparel, shamefacedness, and sobriety. I'm not going to get into this. I already explained how I feel about people today defining ancient Greek concepts. Um, I think it's a very slippery slope, especially here when we have no idea what Larry's qualifications are. Remember, he is anonymous. We don't know who he is. We don't know what, if any qualifications he has to be doing this. We don't know if he's an ancient Greek scholar. We don't know if he's just some guy in his mom's basement. My coworker and I have a running theory that he's never touched a woman in his damn life. Nobody knows. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I just want to make that clear, and that's part of the reason why I'm not going to get too much into the specifics here. I do want to point out, though, that Larry makes it clear that Paul is not forbidding women from looking nice at church. He says, Paul is not saying it is wrong for Christian women to have nice hair, jewelry, or dresses. What he is saying is the church assembly should not turn into a fashion show. <laughs> Unfortunately, in many of our modern churches today, that is just the case. Paul is not saying women cannot wear nice Sunday dresses. He is just saying women should not go overboard or be trying to compete with one another in what they wear for worship. And I just want to say, I'm sorry, Larry, but wasn't one of your rules for wives that they wear whatever their husband wants them to so he can parade them around as the prize he's won and make other men jealous? Maybe instead of lamenting the silly women that have turned church into a fashion show, maybe you should question what men are making their wives wear to church. But again, I digress. 
He talks about biblically ordained adornment and behavior for men and women when they go to church. He talks about inner and outer beauty. He concludes this post with the following. While Paul's carastole requirement, women to be fully clothed, is confined to the church assembly, that does not mean that the principle of modesty cannot apply elsewhere when we understand that modesty means Christian women ought to wear clothing that is appropriate to the occasion. What a woman wears to church may be very different than what she wears to... Oh my god, I... Okay, I... I haven't pointed this out. I don't think I've pointed this out at all because it's not really, I don't, I don't like to correct people's grammar or pronunciations of things because who fucking cares? That's really, it it can be very ableist. It can be very classist. Um, But for someone who fancies himself this like high and mighty writer this dude's grammar is atrocious he this sentence as written what a woman wears to church may be very different than what she wears to church get a proofreader pay someone to edit this shit larry come on sorry he he then continues by saying what a woman wears to the beach well he actually says what what a woman wears to beach um (laughs) thanks for proving my point larry What a woman wears to the beach may be very different than what she wears to work. What a woman wears for a date with her husband may not be what she would wear for church on Sunday. You've already used church twice, but get another example. In the end, whatever we do as men or women or whatever we wear should all be done in manner that would bring glory to God and not bring shame to him in the eyes of the world. That's interesting. Um, I, I want to point out that although Paul also talks about how men should behave at church, this is all aimed at controlling women. Again, that is what all of this is about. Larry didn't bother to mention modesty within the context of biblical manhood or biblical masculinity. Um, Paul had rules for men too, but we're not talking about those. Apparently, modesty only applies to women. Again, all about control. So now that we've laid some groundwork on the subject and Larry's thoughts on the subject, I want to really dive into another post on Larry's blog. This one is called, Is It Wrong for Women to Dress in Sexually Arousing Ways? And before we start, I need you to know that the picture he chose to accompany this post is literally just a lady wearing jeans and a cute top. Yep. Just jeans and top. The top is really cute. I would wear the top. The most uncomfy thing about the picture is actually that it looks like it could have been taken without her knowledge, or like maybe she caught the person taking the photo mid-act. She's got her back to the camera and is looking down into the side like, yeah, she's probably posing, but it almost looks like she could have been turning to look just as the picture was taken, which is weird. Regardless, I mentioned the photo because Larry no doubt chose it because he thinks it portrays a woman who is dressed in a sexually suggestive or arousing way. And again, I say she is wearing jeans and a cute top, but you can see her shoulders and like one inch of her stomach. So yeah, you know. 
But anyway, I want to preface this discussion by making it very clear that to Larry, lust is something that men do or have that is caused by women. There is absolutely zero nuance here. Women don't lust, or at least not within regard to the modesty conversation. But they are the ones that cause men to lust. And now, that women cause men to lust is not a new idea. This is something so many of us have heard our entire lives from a distressingly young age. But completely removing the sexual agency of women by literally redefining lust as something that only happens to men is new to me and is both jarring yet not at all surprising. The second paragraph of this article states the following. Most people have been taught that causing a man to lust means simply causing him to be sexually aroused by the mere sight of a woman, regardless of her actions towards him. So the thought goes, if a woman is fully covered, this will sharply reduce a man's chances of being sexually aroused by her form, which they believe is lust on his part. The possibility of, to use evangelical Christianity's own language, a man causing a woman to lust isn't even part of the conversation here. So keep that in mind. And you might be surprised by Larry's thoughts on modesty because, spoiler alert, he's not totally against women wearing what they want. I know, I was as surprised as you probably are. He touched on that in the article we just covered. But don't worry, there's enough fuckery afoot for me to complain about. I mean, I am still talking about this after all. He goes on to say that because of this belief regarding lust, because of what we've been taught, many Christian men dictate that their wives and daughters wear clothing that completely covers their bodies. Larry goes on to say the following. But true wisdom comes from being able to recognize our presuppositions or preconceived notions of morality. Only when we are willing to question things that we have believed since before we can remember anything else will we be able to find the truth in many areas of life. As Christians, we believe that the starting point for all of the moral questions of life is the Bible. So if we are to truly understand what the Bible teaches about any subject of life, we must disregard all our presuppositions and let God's word speak to us. We must do as I have said on this site many times, remove our cultural glasses, and see the truth regardless of our presupposed ideas. And it's interesting that he says that because this is where, shocker, he uses very cherry-picked Bible verses to make a point that doesn't actually stick anywhere other than in his own mind. He starts with the statement, The Bible says it is sin to lust. The verse he uses to back this up is the King James Version of Romans 7-7. He quotes the verse. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shall not covet. And then he makes the following comment. As we can see from the passage above, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that to lust is to sin. That's actually not super clear, though, and Romans 7 is more of a commentary on human nature versus God's law versus the law of man. 
let me read you more of the passage from the NIV translation, which is a lot more easily digestible than King James. Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? Verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. 3. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. 4. So, my brothers and sisters... You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law that so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead. 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So, to repeat verse 7... This is, what it, this is how it reads in the NIV translation. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So verse 7, with full context, is a commentary about the way knowledge of the law leads us to understand what sin is, with coveting as the example here. It's not a commandment against lust at all. Next, Larry quotes Matthew chapter 5, and in classic Larry fashion, he heavily edits it down and very carefully chooses which verses to include and which to leave out. And with this one, you'll see why. There was a lot more at stake for him proving his point. Observe. Matthew 5, 27 through 28 the verses he cites here say the following again in the King James Version. 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. 28. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, not to ruin the ending... Next, Larry is going to parrot the stumbling block language that women in the culture have been hearing since they were, again, disturbingly young. He's going to attempt to redefine a man's lust as something that's only bad if the woman he's lusting over's intention 
was to make him want her. It's going to require a lot of mental gymnastics, but we'll get there. Larry sets the scene here, though, with what he chooses to leave out of this Bible passage. You might be familiar with Matthew chapter 5. It's the beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, or what is also widely believed to be Jesus's most direct teachings. It includes the Beatitudes, which, quite frankly, evangelical Christianity long since turned away from. But again, I digress. It includes Jesus's famous passage about being the salt and the light, and it gives context to commandments, including adultery, which is what Larry touches on here. He stops short, though, because the passage on adultery actually goes from verse 27 through verse 30. So Larry conveniently chooses not to present the rest of the statement. And can you guess what that is? Come on, guess. Think about the Bible. Think about what we're talking about. You know how the rest of this chapter goes. I'm sure you've heard it before. The NIV version of Matthew 5, 27 through 30, or the full passage about adultery, says the following. 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body be thrown into hell. 30. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And I'm sorry, I must have missed the part where Jesus told women not to make their brothers in Christ stumble with the way they dressed. It says pretty clearly right here, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, I must have missed the part where the commandment about adultery is a set of instructions for women. I must have really missed the part where it's an instruction for creepy old men in the church to dictate how little girls dress and behave. I am so sorry. But let's focus on what Larry chose to share, that we are commanded not to commit adultery and that lust is basically adultery. If you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying the Bible says. That is what the Bible says. And if we believe the context of this part of the Bible, that is literally what Jesus commanded. But then, rather than talk about how in these verses, Jesus is essentially saying that if you think lustful thoughts about someone, a woman specifically, you're to blame, and you need to face the consequences for that. He goes on the age-old stumbling block rant. Larry says, The Bible says we should not do things that tempt others to sin. Quoting the following verse in Romans, Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. This is Romans 14, 13, and it's the, again, King James Version. 
And again, shocking, I know, this is pulled out of context. If you read all of Romans 14, it sounds more like an admonition of judgment and a call to be more tolerable of one another. It reads like a call to do what we can to help each other learn and grow. And if you take the phrase stumbling block to mean anything that leads to sin, it kind of just sounds like this verse is calling on people to go easy on each other. But anyway, Larry plays some weird mind tricks here and wants you to take his inclusion of these verses that he himself has taken out of context, mind you, as proof that you were right and lust is bad and therefore women should cover up. But not so fast because old pervert Larry doesn't stop there. Remember, this entire blog is about him wanting to have his cake and eat it too, so let's keep reading. Larry says, What is lust? This is the huge presupposition that sits right in front of us. We are presupposing what lust is. In our language, when we think of lust equals sexual arousal. Um, You're missing some words there, Larry. Again, hire an editor. In other words, if a person is turned on sexually by the sight of someone who is not their spouse, that is lust according to our culture. But is that the definition of lust according to the Bible? Let's find out. At this point, Larry recalls Romans 7, 7, and he does even more mental gymnastics. He says that in Romans 7, 7, Paul calls lust a sin and then goes on to say, quote, he actually tells us why it is sin because God said in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. So what does that tell us? It tells us that lust is synonymous with covetousness. (laughs) And like... No, it doesn't. Lust and covetousness are not the same thing, mainly because to covet something is to want something specifically that someone else has. Lust is just a strong desire for something. But Larry knows this. He says, Is covetousness finding your neighbor's house desirable? No, it is not. Is covetousness dreaming about or fantasizing about what it would be like to live in your neighbor's house? No, it is not. Covetousness is the desire to sinfully possess something that does not belong to you. That's that's not what lust is, but okay. He continues. We have seen this story play out in many movies. A man desires the land or home of another man, so he offers him money for it, but he won't sell. He says he will never sell it. Was the first man finding the second man's land desirable a sin? No, it was not. But if he cannot legally acquire this land and begins to think of how he can illegally acquire that other man's land, he has now gone from righteous desire to sinful covetousness. So this is key. Wanting something that isn't yours is okay, but not wanting to unlawfully take what isn't yours. This just really feels like weird semantics, but okay, let's go with it. This is where Larry shifts back to talking about lust and modesty with regard to women, because in today's game of what object are we comparing women to, it's land or like a house or something. I already forgot exactly what he said, to be honest. Larry's next statement is a bold one. He says, this exact same principle applies to a man's wife, his daughter, or any other woman. It is not lust, in parentheses, covetousness. He's just fully using them as synonyms now. 
when a man simply finds a woman sexually desirable no matter her marital status. It is no more a sin for this man to imagine her naked or even imagine having sex with her than it is for a man to imagine what another man's house looks like on the inside and what it would be like to live there. Ew. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we really are comparing women to old houses now and a naked woman to like seeing the inside of someone's house. Gross. Um, and also comparing having sex with a woman to what it would be like to live in or be inside a house this is so gross I can't (laughs) I can't and on on top of this I just (laughs) old Larry Sampson or whatever the fuck his fake name is is really out here correcting the bible's definition of lust Jesus said, fellas, pluck your eyes out. And Larry said, not so fast. It's totally fine if you want to imagine having sex with your friend's daughter. Correcting Jesus. Truly iconic. Oh, Larry. (laughs) Apparently to Larry, lust only exists when you start plotting how to have sex with your friend's daughter. Got it. And at this point... Larry really thinks he did something. He says, I know your head is probably spinning. Your presuppositions about lust have been completely blown out of the water. And like, no, they haven't. Sorry, but I'm not letting some geriatric incel who won't even use his real name redefine words for me. He brings us back to the question that started this whole article. Is it wrong for women to dress in ways that cause men to lust? And once again, let me just point out that the Bible told us what we should do when something we see causes us to lust. And once again, let me point out that this conversation is completely gendered. There's no room for men to dress in a way to cause women to lust after them. Nope. In Larry's world, gray sweatpants do not exist. Larry reminds us that, to him, lust isn't simply looking at someone and finding them sexually attractive, and it isn't simply wanting someone or being sexually aroused by them. It requires wanting to, as he puts it, unlawfully possess a woman who is not your wife in a sexual way. And at this point, you might be thinking, okay, wow, Larry actually does have kind of a fresh perspective on this because he hasn't taken this entire essay to condemn women for dressing like sluts. He doesn't seem to have a problem with women dressing in ways that are sexually stimulating or could be seen that way. He seems kind of open to not championing the patriarchal version of modesty that we all grew up with. And I would encourage you to hold that thought because Larry has this to say next. I would argue that once we understand what lust actually is, then we understand better what enticing someone to lust looks like. I would argue that for 99% of cases, a woman causes a man to lust after her first by her actions and then secondarily by her appearance. There it is. So don't get it twisted. It is still 100% a woman's fault for causing the men around her to want to sexually possess her. 
Never mind Jesus' literal commandment on what to do when one lusts. It's the lady's fault always. Or I guess 99% of the time. I don't, yeah, I don't know where he gets that from. But, um, and it's not necessarily because of how she's dressed. No, it's her appearance secondarily. That's why all these, that's why all of these youth pastors are not constantly talking about their smoking hot wives. Appearance doesn't matter. It's their slutty behavior. Remember how I said creepy Larry wants to have his cake and eat it too? No, women don't cause men to lust with how they dress. How they dress isn't the problem, according to Larry. It's their actions. It's acting like a hoe. Larry, our revered scholar and statistician, says the following. A woman has to draw a man with actions in the form of words or body motions before true lust develops in most cases. The vast majority of men will not desire to unlawfully possess a woman unless that woman motions or in some way either verbally or through body movement towards him that she might be available to him. In other words, she flirts with him in some manner. This is when the seed of lust in 90% of cases with man, um, Larry, babe, you're missing a word again, is planted or something like that. Um, And I would love to see the sources he's citing for that 90%. And of course, I am just kidding. They don't exist. I promise you they do not exist. But don't worry. Larry acknowledges that there are definitely dudes who lust after innocent women who haven't actively enticed them and he reassures us that in these cases the man is 100% responsible for his sin wow thanks larry then comes the crux of this essay larry says so now let's change our original question to what christian women should really be asking themselves in regard to causing men to lust after them Instead of asking, is it wrong for me to wear this because it might sexually arouse a man or make him have pleasurable thoughts about me? Women should ask themselves, did I just flirt with him? Did I lead him on in some manner? And this is actually one of the things that played a big part in me ultimately leaving this religion. I refuse to take responsibility for someone else's behavior. I refuse to be someone else's scapegoat, especially within the context of sex and lust as sin. Figure your shit out. Either learn how to be comfortable with your sexuality or don't. Either learn how to have fulfilling platonic relationships with the gender or genders you're attracted to or don't. But I did learn how to do those things. And now I really can't be bothered to handle someone else's fucking shit. I'm not going to ask myself either of these questions because I simply do not care. I like dressing in ways that make me feel hot, that I know other people find attractive. I like flirting. Am I out here trying to lead people on? Of course not. But that's more about me being a respectful human and less about not wanting to cause my brothers in Christ to stumble. I don't fucking care if you stumble. Take that up with your God. I don't care. It's not my problem. And this right here is a big reason why I left. 
it's not my fucking problem and I refuse to carry the weight of that fake responsibility anymore. So in short, Larry can go fuck himself, especially with regard to this creepy article where he wants to police women's behavior while still getting to lust after them. Because, no, Larry, you don't get to redefine what lust is. If you're looking at women in in immodest clothing for sexual arousal, that's lust, babe. And if you believe in the Bible like you claim to, all of it, not just your hand-picked, cherry-picked verses that you think prove your point, that's a sin. He also reminds us that, according to scripture... There is a season for everything, and he uses this to justify Hooters servers wearing short shorts and tight t-shirts or something, um, and women at the beach wearing bikinis. He references his essay on biblical modesty, which I talked about earlier very briefly, and he reminds us that the admonition for women to dress modestly in 1 Timothy was specifically talking about how women should dress at church. He claims that just like lust, our society has made up our own definition of modesty. He mentions another Bible verse and makes a weird half-baked connection that I'm not even going to mention. Well, okay, I'll mention it. He basically says that the Bible doesn't condemn wanting food or sex, just that we shouldn't focus on these things at church. (laughs) This is a weird and very pointless statement to make that doesn't really fit in with the rest of the conversation, but okay. I think he's just trying to reiterate that there are, that there's a time and a place to dress in certain ways. There is a time and a place to have sex or to think or talk about sex, and there are the people it's, quote, okay to lust over. Also that it's apparently okay to lust as long as you don't actually, quote, unlawfully covet the person you're lusting after. Um, and it's it's wild to me how Larry's weird-ass rules and mental gymnastics really just make it all so much more confusing. But we have finally reached the conclusion I'm going to read it word for word because, shocker, it's a list of rules for women. Once again, Larry conveniently forgets the whole pluck your eyes out thing that Jesus actually commanded and leans fully into his patriarchal reworking of the Bible to make sure you know it's okay if you dress hot, you just better do it on his terms. So this is how Larry closes out this spectacular essay. I hope that this journey through the scripture has helped to change your perspective of what lust actually is. If you are, if you are woman, at this point, Larry should be paying me to be his editor. I'm making a point to try not to embarrass him by reading his essays out loud. If you are a woman, you don't have to be ashamed to dress in beautiful clothing or even clothing that might be sexually arousing to men, provided that you follow these biblical principles. If you are married or still under your father's authority, are they okay with you dressing in this manner? If they are not, then you need to submit to male headship that God has placed in your life. If you are able to wear clothing that some would consider more form-fitting or sexually arousing, are you doing so at the proper place and time? Maybe it is okay to wear tight-fitting leggings for a night out with your girlfriends, but it may be inappropriate for school. It certainly would be for church. 
Whether you are wearing more sexually appealing clothing or not, are you flirtatious with men to the point that you make them think they could have sex with you outside of marriage? If that is the case, this needs to stop. That is the very definition of a woman causing a man to lust. And I just want to say one thing. As I mentioned previously, a big reason why I left this belief system is because I no longer wanted to be responsible for someone else's sin. I no longer wanted to be held accountable for the theoretical sins of the men and boys around me. At some point, I simply refused to buy into a belief system that told me I was the problem, especially when, if we agree with the Bible's definition of lust as a sin, the responsibility and subsequent punishment should fall on the person doing the lusting. And in Larry's case, that's the men. I'm not interested in being part of a culture that, and believing in a God that, dictates that men should tell me how I should and should not dress, and should tell me what needs to stop. Like, let's look at this list again. If you're married or still under your father's authority, are they okay with you dressing in this manner? First of all, why are you comparing men that I'm potentially married to to my dad? Those are two very different roles in my life. They shouldn't be the same. And are they okay with you dressing in this manner? Who the fuck cares? I don't buy into submitting to male headship. Fuck that. Fuck off. Number two. If you're able to wear clothing that some would consider more form-fitting or sexually arousing, I'm sorry, what is that supposed to mean? Because my mind immediately goes to, like, if you're fit. If you're fit and, and you actually look good in tight clothes. Fuck off. I'm going to cram my fat ass into whatever I want to cram it into and feel fucking hot doing it whenever the fuck I want. The last time I was at my parents' church, I wore leggings and a crop top. And I didn't give two shits. And yeah, there were ladies looking at me. Ladies, the women, not their husbands. Their husbands don't give a shit. It was the women judging me. I didn't care. I don't care. I, I can't be bothered to care anymore. And then this last one. Are you flirtatious with men to the point that you make them think they could have sex with you outside of marriage? Here's the thing, Larry. This culture, your religion... This patriarchal view of women tells men that they get to have women, tells men to treat women like objects. You yourself are telling men to treat their wives as some kind of prize that they won that they should show off to other men. So what difference does it make if I flirt with guys and make them think that they might have a chance to have sex with me? Your culture tells men that if they want to have sex with me, I'm all theirs. That's their right. So fuck off. Because another big reason why I left this religion is this inherent belief that women aren't fully formed, fully functional human beings capable of making their own decisions. Have you noticed how infantilizing this whole essay, especially this bullshit list at the end here, has been? It's pretty fucking creepy when you consider the subject matter. But that's not my point here. I don't need to Google and look for an article written by some random anonymous incel who decided he's an authority on the Bible and women's clothing in order to decide what to wear. I don't. I don't need a list of rules, especially one written by this guy. 
I don't need said random anonymous incel to explain to me what lust is, especially when he is, quite frankly, making shit up. And I really don't need yet another man telling me that I'm responsible for the choices that the men around me make, that I'm responsible for the choices that he makes. I don't want to sidetrack too much here. Um, It's not the point of this episode. But can you see where purity culture and rape culture converge? What was she wearing? Was she flirting with him? Did she lead him on? You get what I'm saying here. And we'll get more into it at some point when I have the mental capacity to do so. Fuck Larry. Fuck Larry. And fuck this way of thinking. And because I was gone for so long, and therefore it's been a while since I've said this, This, this drivel that I just spent an hour talking about is why people are leaving in droves. Women can think for themselves, and you know what? So can men. Wild how women are infantilized to the point where the Larrys of the culture feel the need to mansplain lust and sin and modesty to them, yet are also supposedly the evil temptresses that cause men to sin against their will. How can it be both? It literally can't be both. And when you realize that and start poking these holes in their arguments, the whole fucking thing comes crashing down. And with that, I'm going to close this one out there. This felt, this felt good. This was a good comeback. I'm, gl- I'm so glad to be back. I'm noticing that the new space has its own challenges. It's a little echoey in here. I'm going to have to get some soundproofing. I do still live on a big street, so you have the cars going by. I live down the street from a fire station, so that's a thing. I have the cat who is a spoiled brat and just always wants the attention. Um, and I live in L.A., so there's always helicopters flying overhead. So it's fantastic, but I'll get used to it. It'll all come together. I'm very excited to be back. I'm very excited to be in this space, and I hope that this was a good one for you all as well. Um, As always, please feel free to share your thoughts with me. Um, Please, if you're not already following the Instagram page, uh, do that. And I have some exciting things on the horizon. mainly just more consistent episodes, hopefully at least through the summer. I have a lot more to say about this whole biblical sexology thing. I am working on some other changes to the podcast and this project in general that I'm really excited about, and I feel like I finally have the time to really invest in this project in the way that it deserves. And again, as always... I just want to take a moment to thank all of you for coming on this journey with me and for being here, for supporting this project. I love you all so much and I can't wait for the next one. Until then, stay cool or warm wherever you are in this world. Be good and I will catch you in the next one. Bye!